Hi, this is Cam Smith, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Eat It, a weekly radio show about food and drink broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website. Hey, guys, why don't we eat? Dear, don't call the boss. I'll have your spam. I love it. I'm having spam, spam, spam. Cornflakes! 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 Spam, 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 baked beans, spam, 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 and spam. I said I don't want any damn vegetables. Lentils are really good, you know? Mmm, forbidden donut. Here on 3 FM. I shall lie. Uh, I, I am lying. As I just my microphone a little bit, excuse me, folks. It is 12.02 here on 3 broadcasting to you from the glorious corner of Blythe and Nicholson Street in downtown East Brunswick and looking across through the glass, through the perspex of our souls. <laughs> I see Carl Chapman. Carl, a very, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Cam. Yes, it does uh, lend a, a reflective uh, <laughs> flavour to the show. Yes, and um, and that could be a little bit of a theme because uh, one of our guests is going to be reflecting on 19 years of uh, helming, of being part of a, a veritable culinary institution, a showcase of wonders, we could say, and, um, and also a bit of a, a barometer of... Uh, where we are as a food community. I'm talking about the essential ingredient, specifically Maria Siliakos, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. She'll tell me I haven't. Um, but she's going to talk about 20 years, well, pretty close to 20 years of an essential ingredient and, um, and how things have changed and grown and evolved. And, um, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that. I'm... Um, Really, really looking forward to that, and I'm really delighted that she agreed to have a chat to us here today. Also someone who I think is um, a beautiful human being and uh, a great institution within this town, actually in Australia, a bit of an iconoclast, I guess you could say, um, someone who does things a little bit different, thinks a little bit different. His name is Ben Shuri. 
from Attica Restaurant. And I thought it'd be a great time just to catch up and see, okay, how the hell are you, mate? What's going on? Uh, what are the plans for the future? How are you dealing with now? Attica Summer Camp, um, a thing where he uh, he went in, he went bush pretty much, and um, set up a a really really beautiful uh, food food outlet there, looking out over the uh, the vineyards and the hills. And I'm wondering if he's going to do that. But how are you going out there? Um, we. All got through Radiothon again. We need to thank people, do we not, Carl? We do. We had, uh, I mean, amazing. Again, I think was it sixty over sixteen thousand listeners subscribing and donating, supporting Triple R. Incredible. I thank you. Sixteen thousand great human beings. I don't have any better compliment to people than call them a great human being, but there's a lot of great human beings that are a part of. This organisation, I still remember Matt Stedman, who uh, sits in here uh, on the show on a bi-weekly. Is that the right way to put it? Anyway, every two weeks. Fortnightly. Fortnightly. (laughs) Fortnightly. He says, uh, I remember him saying that, uh, you know, Triple R, it's a great dickhead filter. Yeah. I will just let that hang uh, a, a little bit there. Uh, now, where is my phone? I just wanted to break some news to you, Carl, um, that um, you can you can rest easy, my friend, because um, the World Porridge Making Championships have finally concluded and we finally have a winner. Where was my invite? I know. <laughs> I know. It was... Uh, and... and uh, uh, I'm sorry that you hadn't got invited. I know that you were probably very interested in this. My daily pear and cinnamon special. Uh, what? Pear and cinnamon? That's how I have mine every morning, yep. Tin pears? No, chopped up fresh. No, Cam. <laughs> Hang about. Ow! Sorry. Um, <clears throat> fresh pears. Um, do, you have a, do you have a preference on the type of pear you use? Are you a Williams guy, a Burbos guy? Burbos mostly, but also Would you put Williams. a Nashi in a porridge? No. No, of course not, Cam. I love the way <laughs> No, Cam. What are you... I'm a serious person. Come on. I'm a creature of habit as well. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, here, eight hours ago, this has just come in from Dateline. It's from the BBC. Okay. Right? Uh, Dateline Scotland. Uh, and breathlessly, they say that uh, a vegan food blogger from the Netherlands has won the World Porridge Making Championships. Fantastic. Oh, I know. She's pretty happy. Um, her name is Miriam Groot. Oh. Because they have names like that over there in the Netherlands, and there's nothing wrong with that. She's 25. She runs a blog called The Veggie Reporter, uh, and she beat competitors from around the world. Well, duh, she's won. Uh, <clears throat> and apparently her winning porridge is a little bit avant-garde, if I would actually say to you, tell me what do you think about this. Go on. Is this a porridge? Um, she used pinhead oatmeal. Mm. It's, uh, got, it's got the uh, word uh, oat in it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're off to a good start in, in validity. I've never heard of pinhead oatmeal myself. I haven't, no. Um, mushrooms and vegan cheese to create oatmeal arancini. Deep-fried balls of risotto rolled in breadcrumbs and deep-fried in oil. 
That's not a porridge. I was going to say, that if that was in an Arancini competition, fine. Yeah, anyway, the annual competition traditionally held in Cambridge in the Highlands has been run online since last year. Well, of course it has. Competitors were asked to submit a video of themselves making their favourite OT dish. Okay, that's where it's, the floodgates have opened on that. They were judged on appearance, execution, originality, flair and virtual taste Reflecting which dishes the judging panel most wanted to try. Uh, Connick McLeod, better known as the Hebridean Baker, and Aaron Leung, a video producer from New Jersey, were joint runners-up. Um, Mr McLeod's Baked Oat Alaska. Again, is that a porridge? <laughs> is that a porridge? <laughs> what, what do you think out there? God, I'm hearing the screams coming back through my headphones. There's a slight little... Feedback is people are going, that's not porridge! <clears throat> I agree. Uh, was made with uh, the baked oat Alaska, was made with honey oat raspberry sponge topped with all these pinhead oatmeal, uh, pinhead oatmeal brittle ice cream and chocolate ice cream. Are you googling pinhead oatmeal? Carl's, yeah, actually, can, you might be able to tell us about it. All encased in a baked meringue. I say again, that ain't a porridge. What's pinhead oatmeal? Pinhead is oats is in America like the... is known as steel-cut oats. I think it's just regular oats by a fancy name. Steel-cut oats. Coarse, okay. In the UK, they call it coarse oatmeal uh, or Irish oatmeal, and they're all groats of whole oats. So I think it's appropriate mm. that someone called Groot got the groat yeah. award. Hoot, hoot, groot. Yeah, well, yeah, congratulations on the Arancini. I can't see you stirring that with a spurtle, which has been seeing the uh, the word of the year. Uh, the other thing I very quickly wanted to talk about was just my love of prawns, but um, maybe we should move on. I don't know. Deep fried prawns? Are you for them? Are you against them? It's one of the few shellfish that I like. Yeah. Uh, but not deep fried. No, no. In a beautiful batter with a hot sauce. Oh, heck. Yes. Why not? You're just agreeing with me to say you can push that button. No. <laughs> I can see you going and ready to go. All right, we're going to move on. No, I was going to say, well, I think it's funny. You know, things get so overrated. And uh, if I had the choice between a hu- uh, half a crayfish and some deep fried prawns with a really good dipping sauce. Prawns. Prawns. Just saying. It's 12.10 here on 3 RFM. We might ask Ben Shuri his opinions on the humble prawn. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Ben Shuri, uh, he's had a bit of summer wine. He invented Friesling, for God's sake. One of the greatest, maybe one of the greatest summer wines of all time. Ben Shuri, g'day, mate. G'day, Cam. How are you? I was just thinking, reflecting on that, I've only ever had one glass of Friesling in my life, and <laughs> my life was made richer for that experience. I remember that exact day, actually. It seems like a very long time ago. It was, wasn't it? That's right. I, I ended up, you said, you want to have some food, and I ended up um, climbing up ladders and helping you do the disco lights around the place. You did, yeah. Yeah, we must have just opened, I think. Yeah, no, that was, that was fun to hang out and just... Actually, I was really happy just as well as having some of the beautiful food at the uh, Attica Summer Camp. It was just nice to hang out and just help out, really. It's good to see yeah. you. Yeah, it was great to have you there. Um, how you been? 
Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. You know, just staying positive and working hard. Yeah. And just trying to make good decisions. Uh, um, For those that might be born under a rock or a terribly ignorant human being, um, Ben Shuri, of course, is the uh, patron of the wonderful Attica down there in... uh, Glen Ira, um, and no, Ripon Lee, I'm sorry, Glen Ira Road. And uh, we've spoken many times in the past, and you've been dealing with trying to keep uh, the space going, I suppose would be a, a good way to say it. H- how is it all going there? And, and yeah, what's happening down there in, in that part of the woods? Well, you know, we we're busy. It's um, you know, we're busy doing deliveries and takeaway every day, and um, and we're just now starting to sort of look forward to being able to reopen in about a month. Mm. So we're we're starting to plan that. Um, and this week we just had an epic clean up at the restaurant and um, oh, in wow. our storage facility. We have three shipping containers full of restaurant equipment. In fact. The entire contents of a 120-seater restaurant we have in shipping containers. Oh, where are and they? What in the backyard? In the courtyard? No, they're, no, they're, off-site. They're, um, they're in, yeah, off-site. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, you know, we've been sort of reorganising that, and um, we're doing a new installation in the backyard uh, for summer. Oh, great! Yeah. Um, and who's, um, who's doing that? I'm doing it, um, and it's it's a familiar theme, you might say. I'm not going to give it away, okay. but, um, but it's a lot of fun, yes. and it's very bright. Oh, so good, because um, there was um, the installation that you did have in there for a while was uh, very much about the environment and uh, possible sort of apocalypses to come, really, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. It was like playing was. Fallout, actually. It, was, it reminded me of playing uh, Fallout, the video game. Yeah, that was a collaboration with the artist Callum Preston called Shelter. Callum, yes. Yeah, yeah, and that really was like the end of the world, and it was a sort of a, 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 a dystopian future where um, <laughs> we'd run out of e- everything, and you had to come and buy your supplies from the Attica Shelter. And yeah, that's they were, right. Um, there was no real food left. And, no, um, there was problems. Trouble at mill, as uh, someone would might say. Yeah, I remember there was a, one of the pieces that actually the staff kept for me and framed was a piece of art that he did, and it was a it was a sort of a pasted-on um, advertisement, uh, like a band poster that said Jim's Fallout Shelters. Yes. Um, and they had, that, they had that, they cut that out of the installation when we were pulling it down um, a couple of years ago, and... That's framed in my office, actually. It's super cool. Oh, good. When the uh, is this the? Um, how did I describe this? Uh, it was like uh, su- what, what was the thing Superman had? He had the Fortress of Solitude. It, it was a little bit like that. It was more like um, like you know, in your imagination, how you might come across like an abandoned town where all the shops are boarded oh, yeah. up and. Yeah. Um, Everything's dusty and broken, mm. and then there was a sort of futuristic shelter in the middle of the backyard uh, with a vending machine. You had to put in the attic. We actually had our own coins made. That's right, a vending machine. And, yeah, um, that was a great was, idea. It was, it was super fun. You know, and sometimes um, you know when you're working on art, the concepts seem awesome as an idea, and then when you actually go through with it, you realise that you made. Uh, like a very dark and very um, uh, 
sad place, you know, and yes. then you have to now sell this to people, you know, so it was yeah. kind of funny. Yeah. Hey, it's valid. Trying to, yeah, yeah, hey, welcome to, to your meal, where then we're going to remind you about the state of the environment and uh, how bad everything is and how grim our future looks. Um, so we kind of realized that we'd done that after we completed the installation. And, yeah. um so and so then we went from that installation to um, a celebration of diversity called Diversity Ice Cream. It was incredible photography by the artist Colin Page. Yes, of really um, seminal people in our in our lives, and um, and that is um, that is completely pitch black out there at the moment, and that's be about to be painted yellow. So mm. watch watch out, eyes. Watch, watch out, yeah. Okay, <laughs> cadmium, like full cadmium yellow. That's it. We're gonna yeah. have to put sunglasses on, and yeah, I mean, and I don't think you've painted much yellow, but yellow is really difficult to paint. It takes a lot of coats. Yeah, it uh, yeah. it certainly does. So, tell us about what do you think about um, the realities of opening for you? How do you see um, yourself opening with limited numbers, and um, uh, how do you see your restaurant? sitting in with the rest of the market now what direction are you sort of thinking of going in i mean attica you know it it's just been hibernating and you know we still have our our complete team um and so everybody's really looking forward to getting kind of back to what we do best and Mm. that is offering our own kind of unique perspective on the world through food and um, I suppose um, uh, for, for us, um, it's really uh, you know a, about um, remembering these experiences. And hopefully, this is the last time that we ever have to do this. You know, that's and honestly, yeah. like uh, hopefully, we never have to go through this again. And this is the, I think this is the third time or fourth time we've had to do this. Um, and so, this is almost a replay of this time last year for us. Yeah. Because we you know we we incredibly hard time on all restaurants, and I think something that the the general public really needs to understand, and, and this goes for every single venue across the lockdown states, whether it's a pub, whether it's a a, a cafe, whether it's a, a restaurant of any kind, yeah. is that it, reopening is incredibly hard on on these businesses, and and you need to be patient with us. You know, we're, with everybody in this industry, we've all had a really rough time. And so what I decided to see from people that want to come and eat room restaurants is, is a lot of respect for hospitality workers um, because it, it, it hasn't been easy. And reopening is very difficult because we are under a lot of um, restraint, uh, a lot of uh, conditions that make it very, very hard to stay in business. Yes. And, um, and now those have been necessary. Uh, so but coming out of it, it's, I think last year, the automatic assumption from the public was, Restaurants are open. Everything's fine. You know, restaurants are all fine. That's yeah, literally I mean, what I. It's oh, like, you're open now. You're fine. It's flick uh, the uh, switch. Well, well, yeah. I was like, well, we're open with with ten customers, mm. um, which is not fine. You know, that means in real terms that our restaurant loses seventy thousand dollars a week. So, you know, for some of us, that's a, 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 a lot to swallow. And um, and I think then, for uh, most of same, us, mate, yeah, mate, absolutely. So, so it's not automatically restaurants are open and everything is fine, this is going to take a very, very long time for, for businesses to be able to turn around these sorts of losses across 18 months. And, and so I just, you know, I just really, you know, most people are so fantastic to come to our restaurant. You know, 99.9% of customers are so amazing. And we just yes. 
like to say that empathy for hospitality workers just everywhere and a little and a little patience. Yeah, because um, that's the thing that I hear you. Uh, it appears because of the extraordinary steps that you took to keep the place going, uh, turning into, you know, do you want a T-shirt with that? Um, how about a hat? Um, here's a book for you to read, um, you know, mighty things like that. Oh, Vegemite Scroll, that'd be good. I'm going to chop up the um, the dining room to make a place to sell stuff so that I keep keep mm-hmm. the business going and keep my staff going. That hasn't happened with a lot of places. And the thing that I'm hearing around the traps, and listeners, I'm sure you have too, and you'd be uh, empathetic about that, is the fact that a lot of staff have either gone, they've left the industry, um, and it's going to be so hard to get people to work in hospitality after that. Well, actually, just to fill up the book's of restaurants and hospitality venues across this country, really. Well, that's right. And, you know, the, uh, as a side to people leaving the industry as well, I mean, just the fact that the borders are closed and, and many, many hospitality workers come from other places, myself included. So, mm. um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely tough times. I don't want to dwell on that too much because, no. um, look, if you open your doors, then you've got to be ready. And there's no no real excuses, um, but um, I suppose there's going to be a bit of a crush. We'll, you know, I guess other restaurateurs and chefs know that there's going to be a bit of a crush coming summer because everybody's been cooped up and everyone's going to want to return to restaurants. Um, but with the restrictions, you know, we're just not going to be able to service everybody who wants to come to a restaurant, and um, we just hope there's a little understanding there, especially for our. You know our frontline staff, the staff who are yeah. you know in the front of house and and deal with people um, you know who don't have much patience sometimes. Um, that is really tough, and that is also another thing that drives people away from the industry um, is sometimes being treated badly by customers. And uh, I think hospitality workers deserve a lot of respect for the jobs that they do. It's a real um, heartfelt type of job when you're doing it at a high level. You know, you're really trying to connect with other humans and try to make their day better. Mm. And most hospitality staff that I've met have been over backwards um, for for myself when I've been in a restaurant or for others. And uh, it's really unique in that way, you know, so it's really something to be celebrated. But but one thing for sure is um, we're all looking forward to getting back to actually doing that. Um, the takeaway has been amazing. We've been able to connect with people in a new way. Um, and some of the letters and messages that we get, it's just such a privilege to to hear about people's uh, times during COVID and how maybe like a simple meal has you know, uplifted them a little bit. And uh, so heard, we're never going to forget that. Yeah, I heard that from someone about your meal just the other day. And I might talk to you a little bit about that. Um, after we go to the break, can you hang on for two secs while we just pay a little bit of rent? Sounds good. Thanks, buddy. We'll be back with Ben Shuri after this. Naro Bakes is a Melbourne-based artisan bakery creating gourmet family pies using fresh seasonal ingredients with slow-cooked fillings and flaky puff pastry tops rolled by hand. Options include pulled pork, chunky beef, creamy chicken and bacon, slow-cooked lamb and spiced lentil, plus apple crumble and a double choc brownie slab. For more details and to place an order, head to narrowbakes.com.au. Triple R Sponsors. 
Contemporary performance artist Brett Ashby presents Frequency, a series of skateboard performance paintings as part of Melbourne Fringe Festival. Set inside Pentridge Prison, Frequency combines skating, sound and painting to create two unique short films exploring flow state, focusing on the exchange of energy, art and power through physical movement. Frequency can be streamed on demand from September 30 to October 17 at melbournefringe.com.au. Brett Ashby, Triple R Sponsors. Yeah, there you go. Ben, you might be interested in that. What do you reckon? Uh, what, was, what were you talking about? I missed that. But... Don't worry about it. Hey, we're... <laughs> uh, it was um, um, uh, Carl, can you... What was it? Skateboard performance? I think it was skateboard performance art at yeah. the uh, yeah. Fringe Festival. I don't, what, what, what is that? What is skateboard performance art? Uh, performing well, that, we, art we, on we, a skateboard. We might have lifted our eyebrows and done that, but maybe what I suggest for... Uh, you people, I'm sure it's valid because it's being advertised on the radio here and uh, you can find out more. But maybe um, ask Dr. Google about that. I would like, if I may, Ben, um, a couple of things is that um, one of the things, uh, the veins that you've been digging deep into, um, which has given people such comfort uh, with your home-cooked meals all around. And uh, I was talking to someone that was uh, Annalise who had one of your packs and said it was just magnificent. Is that this well, it seems to be a lot of the, the food of memory, the comfort of memory um, in your things, notwithstanding the Jackson Pollock uh, chicken Kiev, which was pretty amusing. But again, that's sort of food of memory. And, and I was just wondering what was motivating you with uh, the menus that you've been doing because they've been very different to obviously the restaurant. Yeah, so, you know, first the Adequate Home is a different business and it's a different, it's a different market, it's a different system of uh, cooking and... Presenting and realising, really, I suppose. Yeah, and a fully-fledged meals where, you know, on a tasting menu, you may be having 14 courses and they can just be a single bite or they can just be, you know, the tail of a marron... but that's not going to cut it when you're, you know, necessarily when you're when you're having a three course meal. And also, there's a lot of things that don't travel well. But in addition yeah. to that, it's a stressful time for community. And so I really like the psychological angle of cooking and restaurants. Um, that's really fascinating to me, and, and that's something that we think about all the time. And um, and so really, it's a, about trying to present something that is reassuring and is comforting and and, and, and it's a really, really um, boring word, but it's super reliable. Um, and, and maybe, and but also from what I can see is, you know, the uh, is as great as an expression of that dish as you can possibly muster. That's right. You know, mm. so, you know, something like a chicken Kiev, which I'd, I'd really seldom ever eaten, let alone made before, yeah. you know, it, it took a good fortnight of development by multiple talented chefs um, in our kitchen to firstly, you know, how do we execute this at a really high level and how do we make it the most delicious kids that the customers ever eaten? Has ever had, yeah. And then how do we work out how, you know, how to make it as least hassle as possible for them while still maintaining the integrity of the actual dish and the ingredients. And, yeah, and, and consistent too. And the same goes um, lasagna. God, that's been a theme that we've been talking about ever since I've known you, Ben. Um, yeah, ever, yeah. Ever since I, th- I think I dropped the Dorothy, what I thought was a Dorothy Dixer um, 
No, actually, I was curious. I remember years and years ago, I think I said to you when I first met you, I got, God, you're an amazing chef and you're doing incredible things. And I was a little bit, you know, starstruck a little bit, if I'm honest. And, uh, I, and I said in sort of a fanboy way, oh, gosh, the uh, Christmas at your place must be amazing. You must do the most amazing food. And you floored me by just saying, no, I really like lasagna, Cam. <laughs> and I, I went, what? And and you're going, yeah, no, lasagna, it's valid. I'm paraphrasing in that uh, it's easy to cook. You you don't have to worry about it. You know, you looked at me because I, I might have been looking with, with hor- horrified eyes. And you said, well, we have other stuff as well. But yeah, lasagna yeah, has been a big touchstone with you, isn't it? Yeah, it has. You know, I did this, um, actually, it was super cool. I recently did this um, interview on Radio New Zealand with my mother. They wanted to interview oh, both of us yeah. about lasagna, which was, you know, my mum was really... You know, nervous about doing this interview, but I said, "No, you've got to do it, Mum, because you know the, my lasagna has come from you, and and you know if yeah. you hadn't made it a lot when I was a kid, then it wouldn't be so helpful at this time. It's really bailed us out as a restaurant, and and so uh, it was actually the first time that I heard her um, tell the origin story of her lasagna, and you know it was hilarious what? was that. She was at the supermarket in the late 70s and she bought this packet of dried lasagna pasta, which is actually quite, um, it only, this specific kind of lasagna is really weird and frilly, um, and it only, you can only get it in New Zealand. Yes. Anyway, she bought this packet and she was like, what is this kind of exotic stuff she's thinking? And, um, and on the back of the packet was a recipe of how to make lasagna. So mm. she took it home and that, that was how she made it the first time. And then my mum's quite a, a, you know, intuitive cook, so she developed her own recipe. But it originated from the back of a packet of 1970s pasta, and I thought that was pretty funny. Wow. And, and how from these, uh, we could say, from little things, big things grow, huh? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, of course, my, you know, when I was old enough to be able to cook, I started to make it. And then throughout my adult life, my own lasagna became quite refined, but when I went to make the recipe for the attic lasagna when COVID first came, I really sort of went back to basics. And we, we were on a beef farm growing up, so there was no pork or veal or prosciutto or anything like that. So <laughs> yeah. the attic lasagna is just made from beef, really, really high-quality beef. Mm. And um, and that's representing kind of where I come from in New Zealand and my in my family. Yeah. Is, is there any chance of um, summer camp happening again this year? Well, you know, something we've toyed with, um, mm. you know, um, not in the Arrow Valley, absolutely not. No, I mean, Kylie and I wouldn't survive that um, again, I don't think. You know, that was the wildest thing. I was actually, I was riding my bike with somebody and they were asking me about it this week and I just, I'd actually forgotten about it. It was so recent, <laughs> but it seemed so far away. <laughs> but, you know, we worked 100 hours a week for six months, Kylie and I. Yeah, and it's like that's being not reminded of war, isn't it? Yeah. It is, yeah. yeah. It was just, you know, it was really just, um, you know, fighting for survival. It was mad fun. Uh, and we had built a great team out there. It was an incredible learning experience. It's just so intense. I mean, one of the great things about life is being able to put yourself in, in these situations which are so difficult. And just what comes from, you know, the knowledge and the learning that comes from those situations is um, fascinating, you know, for me. You know, it's really um, constant sort of failure and learning from it and getting a little bit better. And, um, 
So, but I don't actually don't want to do that. Actually, right now, I don't want to do that again. Um, <laughs> Thank but, you. Um, but but it is coming back. But I can't say too much about it. It's coming back in some way. Right, um, well. You might be able to put two and two together. But um, what we'd really love to do, actually, if anybody's got a fantastic um, beach location, is do Attica Beach Club. That would be uh, that would be really fun this summer. But um, well, you might yeah, have to yeah. join me over summer as. Uh, as I do the Eat It Beach Shack. So maybe maybe we can do something together, Ben, because I'm going to be oh, broadcasting be uh, over the summer. So, yeah, who knows? Maybe there's a synergy there. Ben, um, thank you for being you. Congratulations on just your grit, your determination, and your ability to uh, put the, the feet on the floor every day during this time. Um, I salute you as just being a great human being. And um, I really look forward to seeing you and having a Friesling or two or any other bloody drink. I don't care. Oh, I'd love a Friesling with you too, Cam. Thank you, mate. I really appreciate it. And yeah. Well done, Triple R. Love your guts, mate. All right. Take care, buddy. Bye see, now. See you, Ben. Uh, Bye. 12.36. That was um, a bit of a good chat with, um, yeah, an extraordinary restaurateur in this town. This is a podcast from Triple R an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. It is 12.41, 12.42 here on the trip in beautiful downtown East Brunswick. And it is my delight that um, she had to leave her job for me to for her to finally agree to an interview with me. I've been chasing this woman to talk to for I don't know how many years and your constant thing is, oh, God, no, it's too busy. I couldn't possibly. Maria, finally, here we are together, unfortunately by a phone, uh, but together Hi. in an interview. Hello. How are you, Cam? I'm well. See, it took all this time to get you to do an interview. Yeah, well, it was usually November, December when we would finally speak. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was you know, Christmas puddings and getting ready for the rush. And, you know, yeah. the panettones are coming. I've got to go to the docks and, and get them off the, <laughs> off the boat myself and there's no possible Correct. way I could. Um, this was the thing that used to always amaze you. You used to think of you as a woman of unbelievable style. Uh, uh, great panache, uh, and uh, but my God, dedicated to the cause, and the cause was so interesting because it was such an institution that uh, reflect the diversity of um, our economy and our, our makeup as a society. Um, yeah, yeah, and it was. I mean, it's certainly a hell of a responsibility to take on. It um, is something that is, that is sort of all right, Maria. Great great people. Maria, I'm going to get you to move around a little bit because uh, okay. we're just uh, a little bit. Yeah, Carl's looking at me. He's going, yeah, it's not too bad. Um, but oh, it should make sure that we mention the fact that we are talking about the essential ingredient and the. So the original essential ingredient was always in Peran, yeah. No, actually, it started as the vital ingredient. The in vital South- ingredient. That's right. The vital ingredient. Yes. In and you drive into that warehouse with the crickety old stairs to go up to a cooking school. Oh, yeah. Um, and you'd have to go into the sort of almost like the servants' quarters to go into the shop. Yeah. Do you remember that? I did. And um, and the great helms person for that? 
His name is? Uh, so Sid, Sid and Susan Weddle uh, started the business way back. Sid uh, Weddell, yeah. Yeah, way back then. And, um, and it's how's, how's he? Is he still around in the scene? Yes, he is. He's oh, good, thank God. God. Thank God, yes. <laughs> I, I just hadn't, yes. hadn't heard of, from or of him for such a long time. So his, his original vision to... Uh, to have a place, and in those days, um, it would appear to me. I remember a way, 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 way back around South Melbourne, there was a place you could go to for restaurateurs to pick up. It was like the Seven Eleven for restaurateurs. It was called Ballantines. But if you oh, wanted God, the if you wanted the uptown stuff, you went and saw Julian from a place called Sockerman. Oh, remember Sockerman? Yeah, remember that remember place? Remember Sockerman Foods? Yeah, Sockerman Foods. And that was sort of all, all these really exotic things from all over the world. And Essential Ingredients sort of replicated that for a domestic um, audience. Would that be sort of a... a co- yes, yeah, they really started as uh, supplied to good restaurants and people like Sockerman and others like Johnson and to and they were ingredients that we were all familiar with. Perhaps European heritage. Mm, uh, somewhere else. Carl, have uh, suggestions from Maria, Maria on the phone here? Just. Oh, I wasn't sure, Maria, whether you're using your speaker or whether you've got it right up close to your mouth. Yeah. Because it's just cutting in and out a little bit, that's all. Okay. Yeah, we're here. To, we're here to help. Just move around, Maria, and we'll. Uh, we're we'll getting. The, we're getting the gist. Don't. Don't worry. It's. It's. It's fine. Um, but you were saying that um, uh, vital. The vital ingredient. Yes. Started off as um, a sort of a, a an alternative for restaurateurs, but then also um, a little glimpse for the general population to get things that they might not get on the very limited um, supermarket shelves of those days. Yeah, absolutely, and it was it was a time where we were all becoming a bit more sophisticated in our palates. We were eating out more, mm. and it was obvious that what we also then wanted to do was replicate some of the dishes. So, you know, cookbooks became more, um, you know, more of interest as did the ingredients that that just we used in the kitchen. So that's really where it all stemmed from. And and also it could be said that um, in in those days we started to sort of first see the first. Um, not celebrity chefs, but chefs of some note um, starting to emerge because the scene was very, very different. And if anything, we look towards France as the 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 sort of well, the righteous place, the the thing that we would aspire to. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess it's you know French cuisine is where all good, I should say, all but certainly classic technique is is you know is found in French. Whether it's good sauces or you know the skill of roasting meat or braising properly, they're all skills that you learn uh, in, in places like France and Italy. And sort of more recently, we've developed a better understanding of places like Spain and how similar some of those techniques are across the, the globe. But certainly, the foundations of cookery and the technique and skilling in the art of cooking stems from French. French cuisine, so it's natural that the Mira O'Donnells and the Jacques Ravons and the Stephanie Alexanders all uh, you know, were inspired or trained in that part of the world, and, and it's natural that that's where we found ourselves at the time. Mm. 
Mm. It's um, it is twelve forty eight here on three triple RFM. Hey, Marie, you know what we're going to do? Um, what we're going to do? We're going to go for a very very quick break, and uh, we're going to try and just call you back uh, again. Cause that cool if you do that. Um, we're just going to try and call you back and see if we get a better phone line because these beautiful words and these reminiscences we don't want to waste them, and we'll be back as soon as we can with Maria Siliakis from Central Ingredient. Thank you. Thank you. Rusty's Sandwich Parlour is serving up specialty sangers and espresso coffee in Brunswick East. With a focus on local produce and house-made pickles and ferments, Rusty's offers a range of options, from the classic buttermilk fried chicken sandwich to a vegan twist on the Reuben and plenty more. For more details, head to sandwichparlour.com.au. Rusty's Sandwich Parlour, open daily and proudly sponsoring Triple R. Luli Tavern in Abbotsford is open every Friday, serving burgers, hot chicken tenders, cocktails, tap beer and picklebacks for pickup and delivery. Plus, live music returns in December with Country Music Thursdays, rock and roll on the weekends, jazz every Sunday. Also coming up, Luli Palooza Festival on December 4, featuring Hayley Mary, Romero, Beans, Drunk Mums and more. Tickets and more info at lulitavern.com. Triple R Sponsors. Yeah, you know, um, Maria, we were, oh, we're back with Maria from Essential Ingredient. Hi. Um, do you know, I was just reflecting and, and something just sort of jumped in into my head about, you know, the first and all that sort of stuff. I think I saw my first bottle of Australian olive oil at either the Vital or Essential Ingredient and it was a, a, a 375ml of Weera Weera Olive oh oil, and it was, I don't know, even in those days, it was like $18. Yeah. And that was sort of it, That, as well as um, uh, reflecting the things that we expected, but you were also breaking new grounds and new trends. Wow. So, very 75 mil of olive oil. God, that wouldn't last much. <laughs> no, no, no. It was, it was pretty good. Yeah, I bet it was. It was yeah. probably a limited crop and, and exceptionally special. But, wow, how, if, if one industry that, that's come leaps and bounds in, in the last 20 or 30 years um, is is something to look to, and that's definitely olive oil. And, and the olive oil industry in Australia was particularly, um, you know, different to, to <sighs> 18, 20 years ago when it was, you know, one, only one producer. There's, there's certainly a huge amount of, of um, growth that's happened in the olive oil industry, and we're now one of... You know, one of the largest exporters of olive oil. So, what a difference! Yeah, I mean, yeah, we look at Boundary Bend, you know, Cobram Estate, and then just the amount of bloody holdings that they have. But that was it. I mean, here you were um, as general manager uh, of uh, uh, of the store, um, but you were you've, you've witnessed so many different things, and that was part of it. In that. We look towards France, then suddenly, not suddenly, gradually, Italy became valid as, uh, as you know, foods and, and things to as, aspire to. And yeah, and I think one of the biggest changes, certainly in the early days of the vital ingredient, was when the British arrived. So, you oh, know, the, 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 the Rose and the, and the um, Donovan Cooks and yes. Michael Lambie and Paul Wilson and, and sort of that, that brigade of, of guys who arrived in Melbourne and hit the ground. And you knew about it because, boy, did did the world of food and restaurants and and our palate suddenly um, go for a hell of a ride. So that was certainly one of the biggest changes in terms of 
food in Melbourne and, and dining at the time and, and, you know, what they bought mm. um, to that to that scene. And that was, that's still, you know, I think in some ways that still lingers because some of the guys that are in kitchens even today have come from, you know, if you look at Tony Twitchett at Taxi or, yeah. um, you know, the guys like Dylan Roberts who came out of Ezard's Kitchen and, you know, some of those guys are now training the second and third generation since then. So I think the impact of that very small group of guys who arrived sort of mid-90s probably mm. um, to Melbourne that, you know, and, and certainly the one, the one person who is um, still championing a very, very rare breed and that is Philippa Sibley who pastry chefs while... How rare are they? Yeah, yeah. Philip, I don't know. Philip, if you're listening, how are you doing out there? Um, let's let's just bring it back for a second about you because we've been talking about the place, um, it, its place in uh, uh, reflecting change. But I'm interested in how did you get the, the job at Essential and how did you rise through – how did you start it and end up at the – the lofty heights that you uh, you maintained. Well, that's going back. Um, I actually started in kitchens many, many years ago, Cam. Mm. Um, I sort of started in hotels, and you may remember the the building of um, the Rialto, which was you know yes. a place where people like Anne Curley, I think, started at the Rialto, and Mallory from Destasi, I think she was there for a little while. Mallory, so. yeah. So hotel kitchens were once upon a time where once upon a time where we all started. Callum Barra started in a hotel kitchen. It's sort of where where people were drawn to in terms of good training, and that's certainly where I started. And can I also say unbelievable equipment because they were the ones who could afford the big equipment. Like I, my personal, I worked at the Intercontinental in Sydney for a little while, wow. and it was the first time I ever saw a steam jacket or a brat pan. You know, wow. And they had butchers, oh, and they, they had, had pastry kitchens, yes. and they had larder kitchens. Oh, my and God. It was, it was a, whole, yeah. a whole different world, wasn't it? And what if, an incredible place to start. And if you're really lucky, you could find 500-gram um, tins of Molasol caviar in the in the, uh, in the the cool rooms, as I did. What a different time. Mm, yes, I mean, before computer inventory. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry, yes, yeah, moving along there. Yes. So start, I guess started started in kitchens and, yep. and um, you know, I remember my mum saying to me, Maria, why don't you stop playing with knives and get yourself a real job? Um, but but food was something I was always really, really drawn to and that's probably because, um, you know, that's, that's my heritage and, and food's always been a very important part of, of family life for us. What so is your heritage, always... Maria? Great. Yep. I'm Creek, small island called Creek. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Just a very, very important part of part of our our day to day, and that's that's always been something that I've found um, really rewarding and creative, and um, you know, food somehow attracts just the best people. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been incredibly fortunate and worked with some fantastic people. Who um, hospitality doesn't extend just to the dining room. I think it's it's the way that. Um, you're taken under somebody's wing and you're mentored and then you give that back um, as you move through your own career. And I, and I hope that that's what I've managed to do for others in the same way that others did, did that for me. So, mm. you know, I certainly started in cooking and, and then went into food retailing at, at the um, at the David Jones Food Hall. Oh, spent yes, some time with that, with that organisation as well as sort of major events with with 
you know, companies like Spotless. So have always been in food yeah. um, and sort of moved into the more development side or the marketing side of food. Um, and that's that's sort of always been something that fascinated me. And, um, you know, I got a phone call one day from Sid interested in, in knowing where I was at because there was an opportunity there to come past. So um, that's how I ended up 19 sort of years on. The, f- the phone call that changed your life forever. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So, do you, yeah. Do you remember so it? So, like, was it a daytime, nighttime? It was. It was actually two weeks after I'd started another job, and the first time around, I had to decline the job, yeah. um, and spent sort of twelve months wondering whether or not um, I'd made the right decision. But then, you know, a few years later on, I got a second phone call from Sid, and the timing was right, and and I started in in the role as a general manager, and. Sort of ten years after that, bought into the business and and was an owner for nearly twelve years. Mm. Um, so I had the experience of certainly growing the business as, as a as a general manager, but then as an owner. Which you know, God, if anything's going to teach you <laughs> about life and people, change your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it is indeed. Wow. Yeah. And, and um, in all those times, I mean, I, I always regard the essential ingredient as just the showcase of just, it's a beautiful, beautiful place and a beautiful showcase of, of I don't know, just, I'm sorry to be cliched, but gorgeous, incredible things like, oh my God, look at that line of mixes over there or, or decanters that I'll never be able to afford in my life. Is... Is there anything that you, um, your uh, either a a favourite thing that you've uh, been able to take from the place that graces your home, or something that you wish you had always managed yeah. to get? Yeah. Look, the, the one thing that I will say is that the best part of that business is its people. Mm. Um, they are the most incredible, dedicated, um, enthusiastic um, people you know, that I've ever worked with, just such a privilege to turn up every day and, and work alongside them. But in terms of things that I've taken with me, there's there's no doubt that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And I think yeah. we've all got, you know, gadgets and KitchenAids and magic mixes in our, in our cupboards that we possibly don't use as much as we should. But the one thing that I use almost weekly, if not two or three times a week is, those, you know, the roasters. I think some people call them Dutch ovens where you've got an enamel, it's an enamel dish and it's got a, a top and a bottom that one's deep and one's a bit shallow. Sure do. Oh, my God. Change your life. Yeah. Yeah, we're, it, we're, it works on an induction cooker. You can cook bread in it. You can cook a stew in it. They're amazing. I put everything in it, whether it's a curry or a stew or a roast. So, you know, the one thing that I can say I use endlessly is, is that. And and secondly, and, and sort of possibly equal first, is just a good set of knives. There you go. And I, you, you, know, you, you, you don't need many If you have nothing them. else, if you have nothing else, just invest in a good, in a good knife. It, it, it does make cooking an absolute pleasure. So... Certainly, yeah, they're, they're the things that I um, take with, have taken with me and, and still use. Well, what a what an amazing ride it's been. Um, my hats off to you for being um, the the helms person of such an incredible organisation. Good luck in working out you what so you much. are going to be doing next. A big hug to you. Thank um, you so much, Cam. Thanks for your time. Pleasure, and. Um, Enjoy the time uh, between where you go, I've got to do something and go crazy. So I hope you get a little bit of time where you can just relax for a bit. Make the most of it. Thank you so much. Got to go. Thanks, Thanks Maria. Hi, 
This is Cam Smith, and you've been listening to the podcast of Triple R's Eat It, a weekly radio show about food and drink, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website. 